agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love, the government hug the government love, the government Welcome to The Politics, as a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at North Kentucky University. The 2020 election is over. Well, at least the voting is. Multiple media outlets have now called the presidential election for Joe Biden, and he's made a victory speech and is working on transition plans. But President Trump has not yet conceded, and his campaign has launched multiple legal challenges in key battleground states. But there's yet to be credible evidence of widespread voter fraud, and at this point, there seems to be very little chance that the president will be successful in his efforts, at at least to the extent that would result in his reelection. Now, the last Republican president, George W. Bush, and now four Republican senators at this point have congratulated Biden. And if you're curious, those senators right now are Romney, Collins, Murkowski, and Sass. But most top Republicans still have not yet recognized Joe Biden as the winner of the election. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, in a statement that I think is generally representative of how many Republican elected officials are approaching this, said, President Trump is 100% within his rights to look into allegations of irregularities and weigh his legal options. Suffice it to say, a few legal inquiries from the president do not exactly spell the end of the republic. And then McConnell went on to point out that the Constitution gives no role in this process to wealthy media corporations. The projections and commentary of the press do not get veto power over the legal rights of any citizen, including the president of the United States. So let's start with that. So uh, do you think that President Trump is right? Do you agree with Speaker, sorry, Majority Leader McConnell that the president should be, or at least is within his rights to be doing this? And, or, or should you, do you think he should have conceded by this point? Who wants to start us off? Doc? I don't think it's in the man's nature to concede or give up or surrender, if you would. Uh, it's just not him. He is, he is not going to go quietly into the good night. Now that, that would seem to be rather unlike the, the Donald Trump we've come to know and either, well, pretty much love or hate, depending. There's not a lot of in-between uh, with the president. Olivia? I, I mean, I guess legally he's, like, within his jurisdiction to be, like, filing lawsuits and like pursuing this but um hillary clinton in 2016 didn't concede until the morning and people like threw fits about that saying that she should have conceded sooner like that's um the the right thing to do and that's like the mature thing to do and what you're expected to do um and i also think um a lot of people have been asking me a lot of my friends have been asking me if i think that there's any chance that you know these lawsuits could go anywhere and that he could actually overturn the results of the election and i think um what's important to remember is that this isn't just one state i know that we don't have we only have like 95 percent of votes in right now um but but he's not you know biden isn't leading in just one of the states that he needs if it was just pennsylvania and it was really close um and it's not really close because the last i checked it was he was up by like fifty thousand votes um but he's also leading in georgia still and um arizona and nevada um and i i just think you know he's up by so many electoral votes and he's up by so many of the pop or so much of the popular vote that i just think you know if it was a closer election 
I still think it would be immature and that Trump should have just, you know, done what's right and concede. But it's it's not, you know, as close as it should be for him to be acting this way. Now, in a more recent development on Monday, uh, just when we're recording this Tuesday morning, on Monday, Attorney General William Barr issued a memo to U.S. attorneys in which he pointed out that the obligation of the Department of Justice was, in his view, to ensure that federal elections are conducted in such a way that the American people can have full confidence in their electoral process and their government. And the memo authorized U.S. attorneys to open election fraud investigations, but only, again, in the words of the memo, if there are clear and apparently credible allegations of irregularities that, if true, could potentially impact the outcome of a federal election in an individual state. And also that, while serious allegations should be handled with great care, specious, speculative, fanciful, or far-fetched claims should not be a basis for initiating federal inquiries. Nothing here should be taken as any indication that the department has concluded that voting irregularities have impacted the outcome of any elections. Now, Barr's memo seems to indicate a change from previous Justice Department policy, which stated that overt investigative steps ordinarily should not be taken until the election in question has been concluded, its results certified, and all recounts and election contests concluded. And shortly after Barr's memo came out, the director of the DOJ's election crimes branch, Richard Pilger, resigned his position. So what do you think about this? Is, is it a reasonable response by the attorney general that a lot of Democrats are just overreacting to? Or is it part of an effort by, by Barr, who, you know, in the months leading up to the election, has certainly cast doubts on the integrity of mail voting? And do we see him acting less as an independent prosecutor and more as a partisan ally of the president's? Doc? Well, in reading this document, I find a couple things really interesting. Uh, in the third paragraph, about in the middle, it says, such a passive and delayed enforcement approach can result in situations in which election misconduct cannot easily realistically be rectified, which means to me, if we find something, we can turn this around. I think another uh, sentence just below that, uh, again, while most allegations of purported election misconduct are at the scale that they will not impact the outcome of an election, and thus investigation can appropriately be deferred. That is not always the case. I think those two sentences are uh, pretty interesting in that basically they say if we find the elect the irregularities, if we find the irregularities we want to find or think we will find, we can turn this election around and reelect Trump. Uh, I think it's a I think it's interesting that the guy that you just mentioned, the election crime branch director, he just resigned. And the gentleman in the Department of Defense, I think, who 
some time ago said that the uh, armed forces should not be used as civil police uh, type of personnel. He was fired by Trump just yesterday or the day before. this is just weirdness that's going on as far as I'm concerned. And I should point out to, to everyone listening that oftentimes this is why it's better, or at least you can be better informed if you read the entirety of a document as opposed to media summaries. And I would encourage everyone to read that memo uh, that that Attorney General Barr sent out to U.S. attorneys because it's not that long. And I found that it provides a lot more context than any of the media reports that I've seen. And again, we'll make sure we put that in the show notes. What What are some other thoughts? I mean, isn't it, it seems like Doc's argument and the Attorney General's, at least taking it that way, is simply that, well, the time, if there are, if there is even the potential for serious uh, fraud that might have changed the outcome of the election, that that should be investigated before the results are certified when it is still much more feasible and easier to correct a miscarriage of justice or a miscount. Is that a, is that a reasonable position to take? Well, what do you think? Olivia? I mean, yes, like theoretically, yes. Um, you know, if, if there was, you know, there was gen- uh, genuine fraud or, you know, a genuine, um, <clears throat> genuine miscounting or, you know, whatever. Um, yeah, it should be investigated. But again, um, like I was saying before, and, you know, I get that, you know, it's his responsibility to put a statement out like that, but or Pennsylvania is what it came down to. Um, and Pennsylvania is not that close. Biden passed up Trump and now I'm looking at it right now and he's up by a uh, 0.7 and, um, uh, looks like 46,000, uh, almost 47,000, uh, but votes. And I just, you know, with Georgia, I understand with Georgia, Georgia is so close and they've already said that they're um, going to hold a recount. Um, but also the thing in Georgia I was just looking at is that uh, Georgia, you know, was not one of the states that was just sending out a ballot to everybody, um, mailing one to everybody's house. They they still required people to uh, request an absentee ballot. So I just, I don't know. I, I, because it came down to Pennsylvania and Pennsylvania is not nearly as close as like Georgia. I mean, even if they were to, to investigate Georgia and find that, you know, there was, there were discrepancies and that maybe, you know, Trump could have won in Georgia, it still won't change the outcome of the election. So I don't know. I think it's frivolous at this point, but again, it's to appease Trump and his base that are, you know, going to refuse to acknowledge that they they have lost this. Alan. Yeah, I'm kind of inclined to agree with Olivia. I don't foresee this changing the election results as we've established long ago. There's not there's just not that much fraud that happens in these elections. I mean, maybe it could sure up confidence in the way we voted this election because it was different. I mean the memo itself from reading it, there doesn't seem to be anything that controversial about it other than like, they want to do it now. They want to investigate it now before all the votings ended. So I don't see where all this tension is coming from within the department other than they want to do it now. Okay. Faith. Yeah, I agree with Olivia and Alan. I just don't see 
enough, especially going into Pennsylvania, being able to overturn it. I think especially with just as much speculation that Trump has put about with the election results and even saying like way back in August, like there will be voter fraud, tons of voter fraud, that if this can be cleared up, maybe it might help <clears throat> to clear any kind of speculation about the actual outcome of the election. I actually like know a good friend of mine. He's like, there's no way that many people voted for Biden. I'm like, well, if you really don't believe it, maybe he'll believe the outcome of an investigation and maybe it'll help ensure confidence in the whole process. So that would actually suggest that contrary to uh, the attorney general, the Department of Justice working on behalf of the president of President Trump, they actually would be working to something we'll get to in a minute to maybe make it so that more people can accept the results of the election. And that might have an impact on the legitimacy of a Biden administration. Skyler. I do agree with Olivia that going forward with an investigation on finding fraud in this election is frivolous because a lot of Republican senators have accepted the races for the House and the Senate. But we all know we vote on the exact same ballot. So if they're 100% claiming the results from the House and Senate races and all the other local elections, and then they're only pointing out the presidency as being fraudulent, I feel like that has a little bit of fallacies in their argument, along with, as Olivia has mentioned, Georgia is really close. But you also have to think that Stacey Abrams has worked since her 2018 campaign to register Black voters and young voters, and she registered upwards of almost 800,000 Georgians. Um, and that also contributed to Donald Trump this late in the election losing, like how many days after the election polls closed. Um, I just feel that I do agree with Doc that it doesn't seem it's in Donald Trump's wiring to concede, but I feel like all of their attitudes and their their opinions and their stances on the election fraud possibility, I feel contradicts how they acted back in 2016 with Hillary Clinton. They, a lot of Trump supporters and a lot of Republicans uh, villainized Democrats for saying, oh, this can't, this can't possibly be happening. We get Donald Trump won. Like they kept saying, get over it. He's your president now. He's like, you just have to get over it. He won. Like the day of election night, like people had that attitude. And now here we are in 2020, where Donald Trump has a very large margin of losing. And I feel that this isn't a very good look overall for the Trump administration. If anything, it's making them look worse. Olivia. Yeah, I just I wanted to add really quick that I think um, the reason that, you know, his statement bothers me and why it's probably bothering a lot of people. Um, is that he's a Republican, Bill Barr's a Republican, and we have just seen, you know, we, we saw um, Trump set this up months ago. We saw him, you know, bringing up vote fraud and, you know, it was this, this huge deal that he was constantly tweeting about and saying that um, the only way he's going to lose this election is if it's rigged. Um, and he set that up to, you know, sow doubt in the public. Um, on the election results months ago. And we knew, everyone knew that this was what he was going to do if he lost. He was going to challenge the results and, um, you know, convince his base that it wasn't legitimate and that the only way that he could have lost is if it was rigged. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of people's problem, my problem is that 
so many Republican officials um, have enabled Trump in his behavior for the last four years. Um, and and that's, you know, kind of seems to be a little bit of what's happening right now, because, um, you know, I think most rational people see that the only results that may be might be questionable is Georgia. And the only reason I even say that it's questionable is just because it's so close and you might want to, you know, double check and make sure everything was counted correctly. Um, but even then, Georgia is not going to change the election results. So it just seems like, you know, another example of a Republican official enabling Trump um, to behave in an unpresidential way and to get away with, you know, being ridiculous and rallying his base around something that is not true. Um, we've, we've already established that vote fraud does not occur um, at a high enough rate to actually alter the results of an election. Even Georgia is not close enough um, to probably be altered by, you know, a case of fraud, because I think we said it was like 0.0007% um, of the, the fraud rate. So uh, again, I just, I feel like this is just another example of him being enabled. And I think that's, you know, why this is a little bit controversial. Skylar. So I feel that Donald Trump has himself, like he influenced this outcome in himself, not only with his COVID response, I feel that him vehemently being against mail-in ballots significantly decreased the amount of Republican voters that were going to vote by mail because he, he painted mail-in voting as fraudulent and that it's not a safe way to cast your ballot, even though most studies have debunked those claims and historically speaking. So I I just feel that his stance on mail-in ballots prohibited him from having larger amounts of mail-in ballots being counted into the overall overall vote count. Um, by him explicitly saying votes that are cast through the mail have a chance to be fraudulent, his supporters are going to be hesitant to cast their votes through the mail. Therefore, He's not going to have like these large dumps of votes of mail-ins being counted. So he's he's being really wishy-washy. Like he he doesn't seem to take blame for the reason why he doesn't have mail-in votes. And I know in Pennsylvania there was a little bit of trouble with troops being able to cast their vote via the mail because they were out of the country. So they they still have a right to cast their vote. And I know Pennsylvania was having some difficulties with counting after the election in terms of like all of the ballots that arrived after election day, even though they're postmarked before. Um, I remember that Pennsylvania was struggling with being able to count those. And I know Trump was still vehemently against mail-in ballots, even though those votes are more statistically likely to be in favor of him rather than Joe Biden. And I just find that a little comical. Hey, Noah. Yeah. So I'm actually kind of what going off what Skylar was saying. I remember seeing a lot of people talking about the red mirage that we were going to see on election night. So a lot of these states that potentially were going to go blue, that looked like they were going to go red was because a lot of the Republicans did vote in person this year. And then a lot of Democrats, and I mean, like still Democrats voted on election day, but I mean, a lot of Democrats did vote by mail. And so I felt it was kind of, I feel like it was kind of interesting because uh, it was like, everybody's like, well, all of a sudden he was just losing overnight. I was like, no, he wasn't, he didn't just start, he did start losing overnight. That's because we were also starting to count in the mail-in votes, that, which are highly going to favor Democrats. Because again, as Skyler's been saying, it's been like, he's been saying that like, this is going to be fraudulent, like this, your vote's not going to be counted and stuff like this. So it's like, a lot of them probably did have that fear of voting by mail. So if you're putting this doubt on it, then you can't be surprised when it's not in your favor. Then. 
Yeah, and let's let's talk a little bit about the election process. Is do you think that there are what changes do you think can maybe realistically be made to this process to, to make it better? I mean, right now we're at a point where there are still multiple states that a, a winner has not been officially called in, and so are there any things you think that can be done that are likely to be done to make future elections less? fraught, at least in terms of the process? Or is this just a one-off because of the pandemic and not something we necessarily need to concern ourselves with? Uh, who wants to start here? Let's see. Uh, Faith. I think a big thing that would help is I know a lot of states did ask to start counting early, but just allowing states to start counting ballots earlier than the election so that there is, especially if there is this big influx of mail-in ballots, that states have the appropriate amount of time to be able to count those ballots in a timely order. Okay, Doc. Doc says, in-person voting with a picture ID. All right. Absolutely no, no way around it. That has got to be the best way to go. Uh, no, no fraud uh, can happen in that case that I can tell. Okay, Alan. I think maybe shifting back away from mail-in ballots because regardless of how well the method worked, at least in the public setting, because of the, perhaps because of the rhetoric being thrown around, there's not a lot of faith in those going forward. And that might not be a problem because maybe, I mean, fingers crossed, maybe the pandemic will be done by the next election. Although who knows, but, Yes, there could there, there could always be another pandemic. Uh, let's but uh, let's hope not. Certainly, uh, Noah. Um, I find I really um I think it was the Kentucky's Secretary of State who said he was really in, um he really liked how um high of a turnout we were actually having, and so he was thinking about actually implementing voting early across the state. Like instead of it just being one day, maybe we'll start actually having other days for people to go vote, which I think is a great idea, just in case somebody cannot make it to that one day for voting, that we actually will have more options for people. So I feel like that might be a step in the right direction to allowing more votes. Skylar. Foremost, we should make Election Day a federal holiday. I feel like making that a holiday where businesses will allow you time off guaranteed. Um, I feel like that would also help with increasing voter turnout. I do have some qualms with completely nixing mail-in balloting because we do have states that just ship all of their ballots to every resident. And they've had considerable amount of turnout and they've had low levels of fraud. Um, I believe it's Washington, I believe, that has universal mail voting. Um, and I believe that it is a less ableist uh, way to go about voting because not everybody has the ability to leave and go to a polling location with an ID and vote because IDs cost money. People don't necessarily always have those hidden costs. And I feel that currently, if we stick to just in-person voting on one single day, uh, you're not going to see an increase in voter turnout because it's inherently ableist because not everybody can get there. And I feel that, like Noah mentioned, opening more days for early voting. So if you can't make it on that Tuesday, but you have what, like a Friday off and you can go vote, you should be able to go vote. Um, and I feel like with the pandemic really, really kickstarted things to be able to move forward and be able to evolve into a little bit more easier uh, method into allowing people to vote because I feel like there's so much voter disenfranchisement in our country alone that 
using mail-in ballots would allow less of that to happen because they're being shipped universally to everybody. And I also like the thought that you could take your absentee ballot or your mail-in ballot and drop it off at a polling location that you could also do. I feel like there's always room for improvement and completely getting rid of one way um, won't, won't be good for anybody. I feel like it'd just be way too confusing if we just stick to just mail-in like if we don't stick to mail-in voting, if we slowly shift to solely in person. Okay, uh, Doc. I have to agree with uh, Noah, I think, that said about uh, making the voting uh, not on a particular day, but a particular time frame. Uh, And I think that would be a boon to the poll workers uh I think it should be limited until after you've heard all the presidential debates. Uh, but uh, I took part in that. I mean, I voted probably a week before the actual election day, and it just worked out really well. Uh, it was smooth. It worked. I mean, Kentucky does a great job of uh, in the elections anyway. But I I think that is just an absolutely cool idea uh, to stretch it out before Election Day with an ID in person. Thank you very much. Okay. Olivia. Uh, So I'm always going to advocate for um, expanding the electorate and and for allowing um, as many people as possible access to the vote um, and to be able to cast their vote. and. Um, voting, you know, forcing people to vote in person with an ID um, is is a form of suppressing the vote because there are a lot of people who are not going to be able um, to cast their vote that way. And they're going to be disenfranchised and it's, it's going to be, um, you know, people who are living in poverty or people who don't have uh, have access to it and, you know, be able to afford a, a sufficient ID, an updated ID or um, who don't even have a ride. Um, I, you know, one thing that I absolutely loved about Amy McGrath is that she actually was um, was offering to pay for people's, uh, I think it was Lyft, their Lyft rides to the polls because she acknowledged that, you know, a lot of especially Democratic voters might not have um, access to transportation. Um, And mail-in voting makes that a lot easier because you don't have to worry about having that access to transportation to the polls. Um, But I also just want to add that, you know, I my number one thing is uh, what Faith said originally about um, allowing states to start counting um, early votes uh, before Election Day, because, um, you know, as we've discussed before, I think one of the biggest problems is not actually um, the existence of fraud um, because, you know, it's, it's been established for decades that fraud just doesn't it doesn't happen at a high enough rate to alter the election results. Um, But you know, it still, there's this doubt in the public's minds that, you know, we're used to and we're impatient people and we're used to having the results um, faster than we've gotten them this year. And I think, you know, Trump's using that to his advantage and saying that, you know, because the results are taking so long, um, they're not legitimate and they're fraudulent. And, you know, um, having the allowing states to start counting early so that they can get those results in faster and we're not all biting our nails and, you know, playing this waiting game for a few days um, and then allowing, you know, a candidate like Trump to 
use those days to uh, rally his base and say like, see, you know, this is fraudulent. They're still counting votes. They shouldn't be. Um, you know, I think I don't I don't know what there how there's any problem with counting legitimate votes a little bit early um, so that we can have those results the day of or at least the day after. So let's move on and assume for the moment, at least, that the results that the media has called are are going to are going to hold up and these legal challenges are are not going to lead to a reversal. How badly would you say that this experience has damaged the legitimacy of uh, who would be president elect? Biden. I mean, is it right now? I've seen a poll just this morning that 70 percent of Republicans in one poll are questioned the legitimacy of the election. So do you think that this has an impact going forward on what Joe Biden might be able to do or not do as president? Doc. Uh, I'm going to say something I said in a in a class the last time about Biden's mental acuity, and he made a statement, and this is a quote. He he said this on October the 24th. We have put together, I think, the most extensive voter fraud organization in the history of American politics. Now, if he didn't mean to say that, there's something wrong going wrong with his head. If he did mean to say that, it means there is fraud. So I think that basically that statement has damaged him badly. Uh, The second part of that question you ask, how do you rate the prospects of a bipartisan cooperation in a Biden administration? I said, why would there be a bipartisan cooperation after four years of animosity and no cooperation? Uh, I think if the if the Republicans have any chance to derail anything that Biden is going to try to do, they're going to derail it uh, just because of what went on in the last four years. And I should point out for that clip, uh, again, this is maybe an example where listening to things in larger context is sometimes helpful. Uh, In the larger context, it's, uh, sorry, Joe Biden is talking about plans to prevent voter fraud. And so I think another another possible explanation, and almost certainly the most likely one in this case, is that he misspoke, as sometimes presidential candidates or just normal people do from time to time, certainly. But let's move on to Alan. Um, Yeah, so as to whether or not all of this will damage Biden's credibility or standing going into office, assuming he wins, um, yes, it will. I mean, at least on the right, because they're a very tight-knit group, and if 70% believe that this election was fraudulent, I doubt the Republican Party is going to abandon their base and start working effectively with Biden. We're in a very partisan era, and I I mean, if anybody could break that like partisanship, it might be him. But I mean, after this, I'm doubtful. I think we'll continue to see little cooperation going forward. It sounds like there's an assumption here from from a lot of folks that no matter what, 
President Trump will not concede the election because one might expect that if he does, after these legal challenges play out, that, in fact, that number would go down. And and, and I guess I'm wondering, is there is there nobody who thinks that there's the possibility, as I believe one of his former chiefs of staff suggested, that once these things play out, that he will, in fact, concede. In fact, Mick Mulvaney said that he will gracefully concede the election if that, in fact, happens. And Republicans, many Republican office holders will certainly honor that. And isn't that isn't that is that a likely outcome or or am I being much more optimistic than everyone else here today? I wonder. Uh, let's see. Uh, Faith. Yeah, I think on that note, I think that is just being a little optimistic. I think Doc said it earlier. It's just not in Trump's kind of character to concede and really to concede gracefully. So I think it will be a good thing for like providing more legitimacy to a Biden presidency, like Trump's acknowledging his defeat, possibly like being able a chance to like unify the country through the Republican Party. Um, but as far as me seeing it happen, I I don't think it's likely. Okay, Olivia. So. I hate to say it, but, you know, I, I have read enough um, well-researched and professional people who have also said it in their writing. Um, but we have really seen this cult-like behavior um, among Trump and not only Republican officials enabling Trump and refusing to hold him accountable, but also um, among his base. Like I said in the last episode, you know, we've this is not something that we've seen with other presidents, the the flying flags off of your truck and, um, you know, wearing Trump gear head to toe everywhere you go. Like we just haven't seen that. And I honestly believe that, you know, I don't see Trump gracefully conceding. I 100 percent believe um, that, you know, if he concedes, it will be, you know, um, I should have won this and I still think it was fraudulent and, but, you know, I'm being forced to concede and I have to, and they're not ruling in my favor. So I'm conceding. Um, and I also just, I really wonder what, you know, the political climate of America is going to be going forward. Um, because I cannot see going to the grocery store, even, you know, in January or February after Biden has, um, is officially president and in office, I still think that we're going to see Trump's base rallying for Trump. Um, and I think there are going to be a lot of people who are for the entirety of, um, of Biden's uh, role in office are going to look at him as a president who didn't actually win and he stole the election. Um, and we know that that's 100% not true, but, you know, Trump's base is very, very loyal and they take everything he says um, and and believe it. A lot of them do. So I 100 percent think that, you know, at least among Trump's base of Republican, not all Republicans, but among Trump's base of Republican voters and, you know, those who have supported Trump uh, in higher governmental offices, um, Biden is is never going to be a legitimate candidate in their eyes. Alan. No, he will not concede. It's not in his nature. He might, I think a best case scenario is he might indirectly concede that he's not going to be president for the next four years. But other than that, like, I can't see him directly going to a podium and saying, yes, Biden won this election free and fair fraud. And that is perfectly fine. And I'm willing to step down and leave. I mean, I look to the Kentucky gubernatorial race as like, the bellwether of how the presidential election has gone. It was a very close race. They, um, Governor Bevan at the time, he launched inquiries into the election. They had a recount or 
something like a recount. There was a different name for it. Um, he never, I don't believe he ever like directly conceded, but he's like, yeah, this isn't going our way. And then he left. And I think Olivia hit the nail on the head when she said um, that the environment going forward, like politically won't change. I mean, I know Biden's already talking about doing another lockdown and that obviously creates a lot of political tension like the last one did. So no, I foresee there being a lot of partisanship going forward. And, you know, going back to something Olivia said that uh, about Trump supporters maybe rallying to the president or at that point, the former president, even when Joe Biden takes the office, that leads to sort of a related question to this is the role that we may expect Donald Trump to play as a former president. Traditionally, of course, former presidents sort of fade into the background, at least for the first few years to kind of let their let their successor have his it's always been a his way and and not to crowd the stage but i think most people would agree that that is very much not donald trump's style and so that raises the question of well whether or not that will help or that will help or hurt not just joe biden or the country but if it will help or hurt the Republican Party, because, of course, you know, as soon as one presidential election's over, there are a bunch of people who are thinking about the next one, most particularly those who think they are legitimate candidates for that position. Uh, Noah. Yeah, I'm uh, I think I read somewhere that Lindsey Graham said if Donald Trump concedes, it might be the end of the Republican Party, which obviously isn't true, because obviously they are going to be around unless there's like some major political shift that happens within our country. But um, I think this really is going to be damaging because, I mean, honestly, these last four years have I've seen like there's been a lot of division. I think we can all admit there, there our country has become more divided. And I think I thought this election by any chance, if anything could have went well, we could have started to kind of come back down the slippery slope of division and hope to become more united. But with Trump's current actions, it isn't looking like this is what's going to happen. I mean, like Biden keeps on talking about he wants to unite our country. I would love to see our country become more united again. But I think the issue is now that since he is not going to concede, we're going to run into that issue of. Well, he didn't technically Biden is the president, but I mean, he didn't win or something like that. So it's like, I think we're just going to create more division potentially by any chance. And we're not going to have those steps in the right direction to become more unified. Okay, Doc. I think if Trump were to give it up, he will probably remain very active in politics and and muck around in the government somewhere or another. it will help the conservative movement. Trump is not a Republican. He just happened to have to use the Republican Party to get nominated the first time. But he is definitely not a Republican. He is, he is a conservative, and uh, he will use whatever party that serves him well, I think Winston Churchill did that. I think he switched parties three, if not four times, in order to get elected to some post in the British government. And I wouldn't put it past Trump to do that. Uh, in your other question, will it help or hurt the country? I think it'll help it just to keep it from going too far socialist too far to the left. 
I would point out that I think most people would agree that, or a lot of people certainly have been arguing that Donald Trump is not really a Republican, at least a traditional Republican, though I think a lot of conservatives would say he's definitely not a conservative, but he's certainly a populist. And uh, most people would absolutely agree on Donald Trump's uh, populist appeal, which is greater than we've seen for any president or presidential candidate in in quite a long time. Uh, Alan. Yeah, Donald Trump is a populist and they can often be very popular because of their policies. But um, as for his future, um, assuming he leaves the White House, he'll, I don't foresee him switching parties because he's pretty vehemently against the Democrats at this point. But um, I think he'll be a Republican kingmaker going forward. Uh, a lot of media outlets are talking about how he could very easily decide the next Republican nominee and he holds incredible sway over the party. Um, if he was younger, I could see him running for office again, but this man is in his 70s. So I would be genuinely surprised if he ran in 2024. But, I mean, he is quite vigorous. So okay. you know. <laughs> that, that he is, and, and certainly there's already talk about that, including from some top Trump people saying that they expect him to run in 2024. And there is a precedent for that, actually a precedent that involves my personal favorite all-time president, Theodore Roosevelt, who was out of office and then decided he would run again and, in fact, form basically his own party, the Bull Moose Party, and ended up splitting the election, the Democrat, uh, the Democratic candidate being elected. So we will see, I suppose, if Donald Trump actually does follow in the footsteps of Teddy Roosevelt in that regard. Olivia. So at the very minimum, um, Trump is absolutely going to remain active on Twitter as he has been. Um, and we've seen him, you know, even before he was president, accusing Obama of um, not be- having been born in the United States. And then he was trying to throw that again at Kamala Harris. Um, and, you know, I think he's going to be um, Trump has has wanted to protect his pride and his reputation above all else um, for the last, you know, for his entire presidency. And I think that, you know, he's going to still want to try and like validate himself um, and do that through invalidating Biden and Harris uh, while they're in office. Um, and I think, you know, it's important to point out that, you know, the statement that I was making about how I think going forward, Trump's base is still going to be loyal to him, even though he's not president. Um, he's still going to be their leader in a lot of ways. Uh, Even though he's not their president, he doesn't hold that title. I think there are a lot of people who are still going to look at Trump as their leader and the things that he's going to say, whether it's on Twitter or if he takes another position in the government, um, is going to have a lot of sway over, uh, you know, a a good portion of the Republican Party who who has uh, supported him. So, um, and and I personally think as far as, you know, if it's going to help or hurt the country, um, it's 100% going to hurt the country because because we've seen some of the the most polarization and divisiveness while he's been president. And I think he's just going to continue triggering that. Um, And I think it's going to be really hard for Biden to do what he keeps saying that he's going to do is try to unite both parties and work in nonpartisan ways and or bipartisan ways and, um, you know, do what's best for the country uh, for both Democrats and Republicans alike. I don't, I don't see Trump really letting any kind of unification happen, um, you know, as long as he's still feeling uh, slighted and feeling like Biden stole this election from him and, and rallying his base around that idea. Let's talk about the likely outcome of all this, at least in the short term. Right now, it looks like we're going to have uh, fairly certainly a Democratic president, a smaller Democratic majority in the House and 
even though there are still going to be two Georgia runoff elections, the, the likelihood of Democrats winning both of those is probably not that great. There's a better chance that Republicans will win one or both of them. So there'll probably be, odds are, a very small Republican majority in the Senate. And some people are actually arguing that that's maybe a good thing. And that unified Democratic control of government, which was what all the polls practically were predicting would happen, would lead to policy overreach, would result in more change than the American public, at least a good segment of the public could comfortably stomach, and then a potential pretty big counterreaction in 2022, which is very similar to what we witnessed in 2008 with Obama's election and then the very strong counterreaction in 2010. What do you think about this? Is is this maybe a good sort of stable outcome? Faith. Yeah, I agree. I think there are a lot of dangers that are posed when there's a completely unified government. I also think the chance of more bipartisan um, support will happen if um, the Republicans actually are able to keep the Senate. I think especially to during this time of extreme polarization, if there is completely unified force, like that does pose a lot of dangers because then you see all the people who voted Republican saying, well, now my voice isn't even being represented at all. So I think that there is actually something positive to be said about having not a completely unified government. Okay, Alan. So I hate to be pessimistic because I do agree that if the Democrats held a complete majority, it would probably lead to more polarization. But also assuming we have a divided government and there is gridlock, which I imagine there will be, I think that'll also lead to more polarization because as we've seen for the majority of the Obama presidency and a good chunk of the Bush Bush presidency, we had divided government that led to political polarization that led to radicalization. So I, I don't know. I, I think we're screwed either way. Okay. Uh, We'll leave that out. We'll leave that so optimistic comment to the side for a minute and go to Doc. I think a divided government is a good thing. Uh, it will uh, keep from having this horrible rush to the to the left. Uh, I I believe that what you said before. I I think. If things wind up the way you just said they they probably will, in 2022, there's going to be a real landslide to the right again. And I look at California, which has a total uh, democratic control of the whole state and would probably be best for world if California fell off into the ocean right now. Uh, that's that's the way they're they're going. Uh, so I think things settle in with uh, a, a majority in the Senate and the House being um, more divided. I think that's a good thing. Just, just to be clear, before we move on, uh, to forestall the, I'm sure, inevitable listener comments, uh, Doc is, I am sure, not arguing for the, you know, the death of 39 and a half million Californians, just more that California has often been a thorn in the side of 
many conservatives and sometimes they just wish California would go away without anyone actually being, you know, physically harmed. Olivia. So here's my problem. And I'm actually going to bring up a book that we read in one of your other classes because I've made so many people read it. Um, And I encourage, you know, to back up some of my statements I'm about to make. If anyone's interested, read. Um, It's even worse than it. I think it's now called It's Even Worse Than It Was but it used to be, it's even worse than it looks. Um, but we saw under Obama, and actually for decades now, but especially under Obama, um, the Republican, the Senate, when it's a majority Republican, um, they've shown their refusal to cooperate with uh, a lot of Democratic parties and their refusal to uh, join together in a bipartisan way to to get necessary legislation passed. Um, and so I, I, you know, I'm kind of agreeing with Alan that, that, you know, the Democrats are often called the do nothing Democrats and um, Republicans argue that they don't do anything in office and that they make all these promises and they don't actually follow through with any of them. And that's kind of their defense of Trump. Well, Trump got things done. Trump also had the support of a Republican majority in the Senate. Um, And Democrats often, especially really progressive Democrats are often, you know, saying that, that the problem with the Democratic Party is that they, they fail us because they don't do enough for, you know, for their base and for what we voted for. But again, I think the major problem is that um, Republicans more so than Democrats are less uh, willing to cooperate and to um, allow for, you know, some policy that maybe they don't agree with um, to pass. And I just think um, we're, we're not going to see much of anything getting done, um, which is really unfortunate for someone like me who who voted for Biden because I, I want to see some of these policies enacted that he has promised us. I just... Um, with Mitch McConnell being the Senate Majority Leader and with a, a Republican Senate Majority, I just don't think. I think it's the it's a worse outcome to see absolutely nothing pass and nothing really happen that Biden's promised us in the next four years than it would be to actually see um, some policy changes. Let's talk a little bit about that uh, more specifically, because at least there is one, I guess I'm just going to be the eternal optimist in this episode, that there's one scenario in which, given that there's going to be a, a smaller Republican majority in the Senate than there is now, that someone with all of the senatorial legislative experience that Joe Biden brings, much more so even, you know, certainly than Barack Obama brought to the office, that it's possible that he could perhaps convince some people like some of those those four Republican senators who have already congratulated him, someone like a like a Susan Collins or a Lisa Murkowski, bring a couple over and actually accomplish a few things in a just barely bipartisan manner. And so I want to ask you about that, assuming that even any of that's possible, where would you expect to see that happen, if anywhere? And you're not allowed to say it's just not going to happen. Alan? I hope. Fingers crossed. Infrastructure. We've been saying it for years. For years. But if there's one thing that Democrats and Republicans seem to agree on, it's to everybody's benefit to actually update our infrastructure and keep it from crumbling. What other issues do you think might be the potential for uh, some sort of agreement on, again, even if it's just all Democrats and a couple of Republican votes here or there, anything like, I don't know, immigration, perhaps, or health care, dare I say it? Or is everyone just thoroughly pessimistic at this point? Olivia. Oh. Uh, I'm, I'm going to bring up Obama again, because just to kind of support what I'm concerned about is that um, and kind of going along with what Alan said, um, we've under a divided government, we've actually seen over the last few decades, uh, rather than, you know, 
parties getting closer together um, and, and being able to cooperate, we've seen them becoming more polarized and, and going further apart to opposite ends of the spectrum. And um, we saw under Obama that actually there were a lot of Senate Republicans who uh, had agreed with a, I think it was a plan for the, the debt ceiling to, uh, to increase the, the debt ceiling. Um, but once Obama endorsed it, um, they voted against it. And it was more so to kind of invalidate Obama and the Democratic Party that he represented um, than it was to cooperate for the best interest of the country. And that's kind of what I worry about uh, under Biden, because now, I mean, if people were, uh, if people were, were resent, resentful of uh, Obama, um, it's going to be so much worse now with Biden, because not only is Biden, you know, did he run as vice president with Obama, but now um, Trump has kind of cast this doubt in the legitimacy of his presidency. So I just think, I don't know. I mean, I would love to think and I would love to be optimistic that maybe there are Republicans like Mitt Romney who would be maybe willing to cooperate. Um, but I also just I worry that people who are who are still kind of holding a vengeance for uh, Biden, you know, quote unquote, stealing the election from Trump are going to even if policy, you know, even if they support the policy and they like the policy, um, are they going to vote against it just uh, just to invalidate the Democratic Party that Biden represents? Noah. So I'm going to join you on the optimism train, Mr. Dr. Oh, <laughs> so I honestly think so currently what I think by any chance what might happen in the Senate is the Republicans might have a 51 to 52 lead in if I can do my math correctly. I'm not I'm not doing it right now in my head. But I mean, like, it's not going to be this major majority that is going to be unachievable. I think if we are able, I think with Biden's previous skills within the Senate, I think he might be able to convince enough of them to potentially get it to a tie to have the vice president, um, Harris, actually break the tie and then get it in his favor. So I think we might see by any chance a little bit more often a tie sometimes if that by any chance might happen. So I think he might be able to convince some senators who are willing to listen to him because it's like it's not like there are they all are just saying, no, we're going to vote this way no matter what. I mean, like Mitt Romney did vote to impeach Trump on one of the charges. So it's not like there are. Like they're so far gone that they aren't going to be able to convince anybody. I think he might be able to speak to some that are potentially a little bit more moderate and say, like, hear me out on this. So I think we might see a little bit more deal making with some um, other senators that are not like um, far right as by any chance. But I think he might we might see like a potential for more um, 50 50 votes and then a 51 to 50 with um, Vice President Harris breaking it. Okay. Well, I, I I like your I like it. I salute your optimism there, Noah. Let's get the last word to Olivia. I I'm jumping in because Noah convinced me a little bit. <laughs> um, not that you know. I guess I still stand by my previous statements, but I had kind of forgotten that you know the the situation with I guess the ratio of Republican to Democrat, um, in or in the Senate was different then, and that we'll probably have. Um, a very, very close margins uh, after this election is over. And that does give me a little bit more hope that, you know, with it not being a large majority uh, Republican that, you know, like I said, there might be some Mitt Romney type people who uh, who are willing to cooperate. Um, so, yeah, Noah, Noah has me feeling a little bit more optimistic about that. 
Well, that's good. And, and, you know, I think it's a great place to close on that at least very cautiously optimistic note, something we often can't really seem to do. But we will again be back with another episode in this series next week, at which time, who knows, maybe someone will have conceded, will have a better sense of things, and we can look a little bit more forward into what the next couple of years and maybe even talk a little bit about the upcoming house and upcoming geez, in the two years from now house and senate elections how that might change things so if you have a question or a comment we would love to hear from you just send it to us at mail at politicsguys.com or post a comment in the episode link on our website or on the facebook page that's facebook.com slash politics guys page and we'll do our best to address that And if in addition to this series on the 2020 elections and our regular weekend show, you'd like a full, full length, third full length Politics Guys episode every week. God, I need more coffee. You can get that by becoming a Patreon supporter. And supporters also get ad free versions as well as other good stuff. And to get the details, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys. And if you can't afford to become a supporter, but you want all the content we're putting out, just email me, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you full access to all of that stuff. We would also appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show, leave ratings and reviews, and especially if you could share episodes on social media. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Morano, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Nathan Sosnowski. We'll be back with our weekly news roundup and analysis show on Saturday and the next segment in this Election 2020 series on Tuesday. We hope you'll join us.